Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative and creative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in ranch brokerage and land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work and has an interesting story to tell. My guest today is Kate Havstad. Kate is a hat maker and farmer based in central Oregon whose abundant curiosity, creativity, and love of place have allowed her to transform her passions into a full-time and fulfilling career. As a hat maker, Kate's unique style and unwavering commitment to quality have attracted customers ranging from music stars like Lyle Lovett to hardworking ranchers and farmers throughout the American West. As a farmer, Kate and her partner are deeply committed to regenerative agriculture and the positive impact their local efforts can have on a global scale. It's safe to say she's living a life guided by purpose and passion. Born and raised in Northern California, Kate was a driven athlete in her youth, as evidenced by her desire to be the first woman to play in the NBA, and that's the NBA, not the WNBA. As a young woman, a fortuitous series of events landed her in a hat maker's workshop, where she applied that same focus and drive towards learning the craft of hat making. After accumulating experience and confidence as an apprentice, she struck out on her own and now creates some of the most sought-after, stylish, and functional hats on the market today. Kate's life and work are closely connected to the landscape of Central Oregon, and her job as an organic farmer has given her a deep understanding of the role that regenerative agriculture can play in conservation, community building, and reversing climate change. As you'll hear in our conversation, Kate is extremely curious, well-read, and knowledgeable on a wide range of subjects. We discuss her journey as a hat maker and how she cultivates creativity and consistent production in a world filled with more and more distractions. We discuss regenerative agriculture and how many people, including well-meaning environmentalists, don't fully understand the importance of farmers and ranchers in the conservation movement. Kate is a devoted meditator and runner, so we discuss how both of those practices have improved her creativity and outlook. We chat about Wendell Berry, Michael Pollan, Stephen Pressfield, and how those authors' works have impacted her life. There's a lot to learn in this episode. This was a really fun conversation that could have continued for hours. I feel like we just scratched the surface. So be sure to check the episode notes for links to everything we discussed. And it's a long list. Hope you enjoy. When you meet somebody for the first time and they ask you, what do you do? How do you answer that? Well, um, these days, I mean, I say I am a custom hat maker. Um, Usually I have to clarify uh, what kind of hats. People, it's funny, a lot of people immediately think I crochet. (laughs) Um, I'm like, no, no. Um, so I, I am a, I am a hat maker. Um, and these days I'm also a farmer. So those would be sort of the two, um, things I am identifying with right now. And both are very, very cool. And I want to dig deep into both of them, but I think probably the, the first, the, the first thing I'd like to dig into is just how do you, how do you get into making hats? How does somebody even do that as a hobby, much less as a, as a full-time occupation? How did you get started? Yeah. Well, um, it really all started because I was given a hat by a good friend. Uh, his name is Willie T. Taylor. He's a songwriter um, out of Oakdale, California. And um, the hat was just given at a certain time in my life with a certain sentiment behind it that was pretty powerful. And um, I was traveling around 
kind of all all over the Western United States and Canada. And um, to make a very long story short, my dog uh, chewed up that hat, and I was pretty devastated because it was a really sentimental item. And um, I started researching how to fix it, and that led me down a road of um, learning about custom hat makers. I it was not at all on my radar before, you know, trying to fix this hat. And um, just got pretty fascinated um, that the trade really exists. It still exists today relatively unchanged. Um, you know, the techniques and the process are pretty much the same now as they were in the 1800s. Um, and there's not a lot of things these days that are still like that. So um, just perked my interest. And I was uh, kind of looking at finishing college Um and figuring out what was next. And I, um, I was interested and I had found a hat maker in Oregon who, uh, was willing to let me sort of shadow him and watch and learn. And, um, I had another job lined up as a wrangler and a trail guide. And so I knew I was moving to that area to pursue that. And then, um, it just worked out that this hat maker I had been in touch with was nearby. And I just started showing up. I'd work in the mornings, um, at the barn and lead the trail rides. And then when I got off of work midday, um, I'd head over to his workshop and, um, just curiosity. I was not, I did not pursue it being like, I'm going to be a hat maker. Yeah. It was just, uh, it was just a curiosity. And, um, yeah. So I read that when you, when you initially got your first hat, you were traveling on the road and you were mm -hmm. with some, with a, a musical group. Um, are you musical yourself? What's your connection with music? Oh, I'm not really a musician myself. I mean, I've dabbled, but yeah. um, I'm just a huge appreciator of music. I think that music enhances my life. Um, I'm really inspired by music. Um, and I think beyond just music, I was with a group of people who were uh, really amazing storytellers, whether they're on stage or off stage. Um, and I think that I've always just been a huge appreciator of great storytelling. Um, yeah, so, that, yeah, that makes sense. And so as a, as a kid, you know, looking back to, to when you grew up, it, it's, were you artistic or were you, uh, a, a, a mini craftsman as a child or how did you kind of come? Did you ever think like, I, I want to be a maker. I want to make stuff when I grow up. Is that, is that what you thought? No, I actually was a huge jock. So I like had a phase when I was young where I wanted to be the first woman in the NBA and I wanted to, <laughs> yeah, cause I didn't want to be in the WNBA. I wanted to be in the NBA. Yeah. Nice. Um, so I was very athletic. That was, that was my big thing growing up, but I was also, I mean, I dabbled in everything. Um, I think I have my parents to thank for that. I mean, they both worked full time. So I feel like they kept us all very busy, um, with activities. So, you know, whether it was like theater camp or, you know, after school band or, uh, yeah, we took art classes. Um, I did tap dance. I mean, I did everything. So I think I was very, um, curious mm -hmm. and yeah, creative. Um, you know, we didn't have TV, um, from yeah, most of my childhood. That's awesome. So yeah, activities were, you know, usually outdoors. Um, so whether we were like building forts outside or like, I mean, constantly making up imaginary games, um, usually revolving around horses because I was horse obsessed and I still am. Um, so yeah, creative and just very curious and active all the time. Um, 
but no, I wasn't like, I'm going to be an artist. That wasn't uh, a clear vision for me. So, I mean, when I, yeah, I kind of struggled my way through college. I mean, I, I got through, I was always like a pretty good student, but I wasn't very inspired. And, you know, bringing it back to that time on the road, um, I, I was given that hat at this time when I was just kind of like drudging through university mm-hmm. and super uninspired and just like, what am I doing here all the, you know, all the time, just asking myself that. And the songwriter friend of mine, Willie T, I think he recognized that. And he gave me this hat and the sentiment behind it when he gave it to me was, um, I'm sorry, there's a sound in the background. Can you hear that? <laughs> yeah, I can hear it, but it's, uh, that's no problem. This is a podcast. Okay, okay great. That's just a vacuum. Um, <laughs> important, yeah. Keeping the house clean is very important, at least on my, in my yeah, house. Yeah, we're keeping it real. Yeah. So. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the, the sentiment behind that hat when it was given to me was, there's a, Willie T said this, was that, you know, I think that there's inspiration to be found on the road. I Uh think that you need to trust your intuition and go looking for it. And, um, his goal with that trip that I, I took off with him on was he was filming a music documentary called searching for Guy Clark's kitchen. Okay. And, um, Guy Clark is one of my favorite songwriters and, um, uh, it's kind of inspired by this, uh, other music documentary called heartwarming highways. Okay. And just the the whole essence behind it was like where the magic really happens is often not on stage. It's often in the kitchen, um, hanging around with your buddies, swapping stories, passing your guitar around, sharing these songs and these stories. And so that's searching for Guy Clark's kitchen. So I hit the road like pretty, pretty naive to this, um, you know, sort of traveling troubadour way of life at that mm-hmm. time. And I, I just was introduced to this community of people who um, were so passionate and so dedicated to really following their passions, um, almost to a fault. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, was that, that completely was really new what, to you? Had you ever been around people like that before? Um, I don't think in that way. No, sure. um, because I'm not a musician myself. So I, I was touring with musicians, you know, not being a musician myself, that's very normal in, in their world. And, and it really, I, I was opened up to this really beautiful, um, way of life mm-hmm. and was really inspired. And, and it, it motivated this introspection of what it is, what is it that I am passionate about? I'm not a musician. Uh, I don't really feel like that's my calling, but, but that was sort of a kick in the butt to be like, go looking for it. So in order to do that, I'd actually dropped out of college and it, um, I did that tour, um, and then kind of bounced around to a couple of different things. Um, I worked for a touring farm to table organization. So, um, we threw farm dinners, uh, on different farms all around the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and that led me to Canada. And I, again, met this group of people who I was just, it wasn't necessarily the place I wanted to be, but it was the group of people I wanted to surround myself with. Um, and they were a group of artists up in Vancouver. So I had moved to Canada because I was just like, I don't know what it is, but there is something here I need to explore. Um, and that was actually where my dog chewed up my hat. So it's a very like long and winding story, but essentially, you know, I was set off on this path. Um, and just to start searching for whatever this thing was that 
I, I felt I needed to go find. Um, That's yeah. really cool. And so what did your parents think while you were doing that? Just because I, <laughs> I, I, that sounds, that sounds awesome. And I did a, kind of a similar <laughs> type thing. And I think when I was doing that, my parents were like, what the hell is he doing? You know, like, Oh, they absolutely were like, Oh God, Katie. Um, I mean, at first I actually was just talking to Willie T about this. Um, yeah, I think at first they were like, first of all, who is this uh, middle-aged man who oh, you're yeah. taking as off the, with? <laughs> as the father of a little girl, that would be my number one question. <laughs> yep, totally. Which Lily T was just like a you know wonderful friend to me. Sure. But they were just like, all right, <laughs> you're going on the road to do what? Um, but I think that they've always had uh, great confidence in me. Um, and, you know, they're wonderfully supportive. Supportive. I think that they're critical when they need to be, but in essence, like I've always been a sort of like, you know, figure it out as I go and I have to learn through trying. Um, and so, yeah, they supported me and, you know, when I needed help, they were there and, um, you know, it all, it all ended up working out. I think we get to have good laugh about it now because now things are going great, but who knew then, <laughs> Yeah, well, it's, uh, I think if anybody's going to accomplish anything significant, there's always a risk, you know, no matter what you're talking about, if it's yeah. sports or career and, and uh, the the safe way generally isn't going to, you know, lead to the results that, that certain people, you know, are, are seeking. So um, I think that's awesome. So when you went back think, to college, did, did you have a, a renewed sense of purpose at college or was it more like, all right, I just got to get this done so then I can go yep. do do something else? It was really just do what it takes to get it done. Um, I had made a promise to them that I would go back and finish. So that was really the goal. It was just like, okay, um, you know, I've really recognized that, uh, you know, there's, there's wonderful aspects to university learning. Um, but there was a lot, there was a lot of life to go live. And I, I knew that that was where I was going to really find some of the answers I was looking for. So I just, you know, I think it was great. I went back, I finished, you know, um, accomplished that. And then was free to set out um, and and just go for what was next. So well, all I knew finishing college was I want to ride every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was hard for me to ride um, during college. You know, didn't have very much money. Was working, and when I wasn't working, I was studying. Um, so I had to figure out a way to get some riding in um, in some way or another. So I picked up a job as an exercise rider at a barn. Um, and then all I really knew once I finished was I just want to find a way to ride every day. Mm -hmm. So that was how I pursued my job as a a trail guide up in Oregon. Um, and that was really my only goal. I wasn't like, you know, I'm going to go figure out my life. I just, I finished what I needed to finish. I'm going to go just enjoy this now. Um, and that's what brought me up to Oregon really. And I was just very fortunate that, uh, you know, the, the work as the trail guide happened to happen in the same town uh, where there was a hat maker who was willing to let me sort of shadow him. Got it. And so can you talk a little bit about that apprenticeship and, and kind of how that worked and, and what you learned and the, the value of having a, a mentor like that? Yeah. Um, well, I've had several I've had several teachers. So for that, you know, that first my first teacher, um, First of all, it's what got me hooked. Um, I had no knowledge of anything hat making related before I stepped into his workshop. Um, so I learned all of the fundamentals of blocking and pouncing and shaping. And um, I think it was good. You know, he made me just really observe for a long time. 
um, and then slowly let me get my hands on the materials. Um, and, and, you know, one of the greatest things I think I can take from that first apprenticeship was one of the things he said to me was that the greatest hat maker is the most innovative hat maker. Mm -hmm. And that has stuck with me, um, today till today. Um, so I got all of my fundamentals really there and I got hooked there. Um, what I'll also say is that, um, I learned how I wanted to do it. Um, and it wasn't the way he was doing it. And so there comes a time, I think, in all people's journey as an ap <laughs> apprentice where, um, you know, you've sort of, you've, you've learned what you can learn from that person and it is time for you to strike out, um, and either go do it yourself or go find another teacher. And so I reached that point with him and that was what really motivated me to start investing in the equipment and finding what I needed to start doing it on my own. Cause I had certain, I think, visions that were, um, different from his visions. Got it. So that's what motivated me to start hunting for equipment. Um, and I'd say that's as much of a job as just learning how to make the hats is really hunting down the equipment because it's pretty hard to find. Yeah, I would imagine. So back, back to the apprentice thing real quick. How long did you work with him until you started having these ideas in your head right, about, well, I've got different ideas about this or, you know, how was there, was it a year or two years? I mean, how long did that take? Yeah, it was just under a year. Okay. And, um, and I, I think part of it too was, um, I was, you know, sharing, I don't think I even had Instagram in the beginning. Like it, mm -hmm. that wasn't a thing. Um, but I was sharing what I was doing with friends and people were, uh, so interested and they were saying, ah, oh, I want you to make me a hat. I want you to make me a hat. And that was very motivating. Like, wow, this is cool. People are even interested in this. And, um, so yeah, I think that I felt a certain sort of motivation and, and to be completely honest, um, you know, I think that he, he, he wanted to run his workshop in a certain way and I totally respected that. And I just acknowledged that, you know what, this is, this is his deal. And I have these certain like ideas and, um, you know, I think I'm going to need to go do this on my own. Yeah. Um, whereas I think in the beginning, I, I, I think I really wanted to work for him and, um, I, I was a little bit sad when I realized that it wasn't, he didn't really look at me in, in that sort of like an equal way as far as bringing me on. Mm -hmm. And so that was a sort of, that was an interesting, I'd say this journey has definitely been full of, um, lessons, some easier to swallow than others. And that was one of those ones where it was like, okay, like th this is one of those moments where you acknowledge like, this is not quite it. So mm -hmm. let's search for what might be it. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that's kind of, you know, when you read, I read so many biographies about people and interesting lives. And it seems like there's always a story like that of, of people kind of reaching the the potential of whatever, wherever their apprenticeship, the kind of the natural end of their apprenticeship and if you're, yeah. if you're destined or, or have the mindset to want to go out on your own, that's, it's going to happen, unfortunately. I mean, it's really, Certainly. In, the, in the long run, it's fortunate, but in the short run, it's, I imagine it's pretty rough. And what's amazing is that once that chapter ended, um, you know, I remember the first hat I wanted to make on my own. Um, you know, I'm standing in this makeshift workshop. I had built a workshop into, I was living in an apartment in a horse barn. And, um, I converted one of the washrooms into a little workshop and I had, you know, bare bones equipment. And I remember standing there just being like, okay, 
now what do I do? Like it was the first time where I didn't have somebody sort of, um, coaching me or showing me or being there to look at and be like, Oh, well, what, what do I do about this? There was no one there to really look at and ask the questions. And I think that is when my learning skyrocketed, um, was when that security blanket of a teacher was sort of taken away. And then it was just me and my workbench and I just got to it. That's really cool. So you mentioned having bare bones equipment at the beginning. Do you think that that has helped your, your hat making over, over time, you know, starting out with that really basic stuff. And now I imagine you have a lot more kind of more um, sophisticated type equipment, but is it, did that help having to do it on a most basic level? Yes. Totally. And I, yes, absolutely. Um, and, and although I have some more equipment now, it's still fairly simple. And I go back, I go back to that, you know, that thing that my first teacher told me that the best hat maker is the most innovative. Mm -hmm. Um, there are not necessarily tools for everything you want to do. You often have to make the tools to do what you want to do. Um, and so I think in the beginning, yeah, having the bare bones, it forces you to get creative and, and to learn how to be innovative and to create what you need. Um, and that has served me very well and still continues to now. Yeah. I think there's a lot to be said for just really, really learning the basics. Cause I think, especially nowadays, there's so many things that, uh, you know, everything can be so fancy, like with photography, for example, you can go out and buy the fanciest camera in the world. But I think if just starting out with a very basic camera, learning how it works and working your way up, you'd be a lot better photographer. Um, yeah. at least that's how it wor- has worked for me. I'm not a professional or anything, but, um, I but agree. That's cool. Um, so you, you went off on your own and then was there a tipping point when you realized like, Oh, you know, I've really got something going here. I think I can, I can make a go of this as a full-time career or was it more of just kind of a slow grind? And, and after several years you realized, all right, this, this is working out. Or was there a specific moment when you realized that? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think that I knew that this is something I wanted to seriously pursue. Um, you know, midway into my first apprenticeship. Um, but when I really, I, I remember this aha moment I had, um, the first public event I ever did, um, where I took a bunch of hats down. I went to this place called Bandit Town and it's in the center of California. Um, and they have, uh, music events and festivals and, uh, it's a cool, it's a really neat group of people. And, um, that was my first ever public event. And, um, I was setting up my stuff and I actually had, uh, two women approach my booth before I was even set up and they said, Hey, you know, we, we saw you on Instagram and, um, we came here to buy hats and I was just like, so confused. Like, <laughs> like you want to give me money? What? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, absolutely. So not only did they each buy a hat off of the wall, they each custom ordered a hat as well. And I think that that first transaction was just sort of like, oh my gosh! Did you I did you try to play it cool? <laughs> did you try to play it cool? Like, oh yeah, totally. or were you very excited? Like, oh my god, yeah, definitely. I think I did try to play it cool. cool. I think inevitably I was bubbling. Um, <laughs> that whole day was really that. That was the you know the event hadn't even kicked off when those two women approached me, and the rest of the day was like that. And you know, every time I do an event at the end of the day, I'm just sort of like mentally and socially just drained. And we were packing up stuff. And I, one of my very best friends had helped me that day at that event. And, um, this was actually one of the sweetest moments of my whole life. 
but he, he was sitting on the edge of this porch. I was packing up our stuff and he looked kind of bummed. And I thought, Oh my gosh, did I overwork him? Or is he annoyed that he had to work all day or something? And, and I went and sat down with him and I was like, are you okay? Like, and he had tears in his eyes and he was just like, I'm so proud of you. Like you're doing this. And it was just, it, that was one of the most special moments to share with a friend of like, holy moly, like I'm doing this. <laughs> <laughs> that is really cool. That's a great yeah. story. Yeah. Um, so uh, can you just talk a little bit about who buys these hats? Cause I know there's a, a long list of really interesting people and it's a wide range of people who, who are your customers? It's a wide variety anywhere from, um, I've got a lot of musician clients. Um, I've got farmer and rancher customers. Um, I have just, um, you know, there's anyone from, uh, you know, this is a working tool to somebody to this is a fashion accessory. So it's a really wide variety. I've made hats for popular musicians and actors in Hollywood. Um, you know, my neighbors in central Oregon, um, it's a huge wide variety, but I think in the beginning, um, especially cause I was going to a lot of music events, it attracted a huge music crowd. Mm -hmm. Have you gotten to meet any, um, musicians that you admired before you got into the hat making world? Yes, a lot. Um, let's see. <laughs> Don't want to like boast too much. I'd say one of the highlights was, um, I got to meet Lyle Lovett. Through all Did of you this. really? Yes. That's the that real deal. That's the real deal, man. What a guy. And that was one of the proudest moments I had because I also got to introduce my parents to him. And I grew up listening to Lyle Lovett with my dad. And so when we got to meet him um, and we were hanging out backstage and Lyle's a big motorcycle guy, as is my dad. Uh -huh. So they were talking about dirt bikes. And I just was like, oh, man, like if I if they ever worried about me, hopefully now they're. <laughs> feeling proud of me. So Lyle Lovett was a, he was, he was a highlight. It was a real pleasure to meet him. Um, recently I've gotten to know Gillian Welsh, who I'm like a huge, huge oh, fan wow. of her. Um, yeah, that was, uh, that was definitely a highlight. That's really um, cool. That the thing about both of those musicians is that they're extremely authentic. They're extremely talented. They're, um, it's not, I think it speaks to musicians like that. It speaks to the quality of your, of your hats, because, you know, it'd be one thing if like Kenny Chesney wanted to wear your hat <laughs> totally. and maybe you will one day, Kenny, love you, Kenny, but, uh, <laughs> totally. but you know, You're the listening, fact that I you, would do it. Yeah. That you got, you know, I love it. Julian Welch. I mean, those are just two authentic, well-respected musicians by any genre, any musician in any genre would respect those people. And so I think that's yes. what, what a compliment that they're, that they, they love your work as well. Oh yeah. They're such uh they're such craftsmen and craftswomen themselves. Um, so huge honor. Um, and then a lot of these people who I've gotten to know, um, have also just become friends and become supporters. Nikki Lane. She, um, I don't know if you know Nikki, but she is from, uh, she lives in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, and she has been one of my biggest supporters. I think she got one of my very first hats at that Bandit Town event, actually. Cool. And um, as a result, she, you know, she told Casey Musgraves about me, and I ended up making, you know, Casey's CMA uh, performance hat. And um, you know, she introduced me to Margot Price, and I got to make Margot Price a hat. So it's been very fun because music is so important to me. I think I really like working with the musicians. Um, so that has been really wonderful <laughs> that's really cool and 
So when you're making these hats, kind of your general outlook, are you, would you say you're more goal oriented? Like, all right, I need to make this specific hat for this specific person. And you're just completely focused on the goal or are you more, do you enjoy the process of making the hat more? Which one is more important to you? Gosh, it's hard to say what is more important and it probably would vary from time to time. Um, certainly the process. I think I enjoy the process much more than like, um, then, then checking things off. That's not really the, the priority. Um, I really get lost in the process and that's, I think why I love this trade so much, um, is I just get lost in the work and that's a wonderful thing for me. Um, so I'd say I'm more process oriented, but as this has become, uh, more serious as a business, I have had to get, more goal oriented, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Um, I, I, you know, this isn't a hobby. This isn't just, um, I'm doing this as my living. So, um, you've actually mentioned this book before, and this book has been huge for me, but the war of art, um, I is, love that book. I love that book too. And it's been really helpful for me because, um, there are times when I just need to, I just need to get to it. Like I'm not sitting around waiting for this feeling of motivation and inspiration. I just got to dive in and get to work. Yeah, that's uh, well, that was going to be my next question and you already answered it. Um, you know, there's some artists that sit around and wait for inspiration and then more, more often than not, it seems that professional artists have a routine they follow and they don't, they don't wait for inspiration. I think Duke Beardsley, uh, artist I interviewed on here, he said, he quoted somebody and said, you go out and you find, you hunt inspiration down with a bat. <laughs> and yeah. so is that, do you have certain daily routines that you, that you do every day so that you can ensure that the inspiration shows up and that you can make these hats? Yeah. Um, I certainly do. And that's been also a learning for me as much as I'm learning about hat making, you know, and I'm learning about technique and I'm perfecting my technique. I've also been on this journey of, uh, becoming a better professional at this and becoming a better business person. So there's all these layers of learning. It's not just, you know, step one is, is learn to make a great hat. Like really that was my focus for the first few years. And in the last two years, it's really been okay. Really start to match master myself um, and create this consistency, um, in, in my workflow. So, I mean, key things for me are, um, exercise. That yep. is a, a key thing for me. I like to wake up and do it in the morning. Um, in the warmer months, I like to run outside. And then in the colder months, um, I tend to go to the gym, mm -hmm. but that, um, that is huge for me. Um, and then, yeah, I, I, I don't set like a nine to five schedule, um, but I'm working, I'm working every day, you know, whether it's in my workshop or on the back end, um, on the computer, which is my least favorite part of things, but important nonetheless. So yeah. I, yeah, I, uh, I don't set a schedule, but I am certainly, you know, every day I wake up and I am, I'm, I am approaching this as a professional and as a business. Um, and that has been a, a great learning process and a book like the war of art is great. Um, anybody who, you know, might struggle with sitting around and twiddling your thumbs and the way just he talks about that resistance. I mean, I, I meet that resistance, you know, I went, maybe not every day, but a lot of days you, you meet that resistance and you have to find the tools 
to move beyond it. I agree. I can't recommend that book enough. And I don't think, you know, I'm not artistic and I, I found a lot of value in it for, for work or sports or anything. I mean, it's that, that idea of the resistance that's really changed my whole perspective on things. I can't recommend it enough. I think it's also, um, what I find too, is if, uh, sometimes I feel this about my running too. I love to run, but sometimes the hardest thing is just getting your shoes on and getting out the door. Yes. And I find that too, about walking into my workshop. Like I will find myself doing all the chores around the farm that I can do, um, before I will get myself to walk into that workshop. And it's just like, God, just walk in there. And once I am in there, I'm in it. But it's just, it's that funny thing of just, just walk in the workshop and you will inevitably want to get to work on what is in front of you. It's amazing. And I'm glad to hear that. And it's, it's funny how most kind of creative type people have that same, that exact same description. And I, I always think of it as, it's like having a big boulder on the hill and you just got to push it and put in a, a lot of effort to get it going and then it goes. And like that's how yes. I am with, with work stuff or with anything I'm trying to – running especially. I just need to go, just get the effort, go, and then it's great. You know, the momentum hits. Yeah. And you think I would have figured it out now after like 30 years. But. <laughs> well, that's good to hear because I have these moments of like, man, like when am I just going to remember that you just got to walk in the workshop and you're going to love it. So. Yeah, I don't think – I mean, you know, that guy who wrote World of Art, Stephen Pressfield, I bet he's 75 years old and he's still every day. It's the same thing. So I – I don't know. You just got to learn to love the the struggle, I guess. Um, yeah. So this is kind of along those lines. I just read something, an article about you that you sent out the other day, and it mentioned that you have have started meditating. Um, yes. Can you talk about that and the importance that that's had on your your production and your creativity? Yeah, um, that's been such a pleasant surprise. Um, I I forget who first gave me. My dad may have given me this book. This guy, Lodro Rinsler, has written some really great books. Um, one is called Sit Like a Buddha. The other one's called Walk Like a Buddha. And it's sort of more of this uh, uh, a way to look at Buddhism and sort of mindfulness and meditation in a more modern-day view. Mm-hmm. And I think that was what motivated me to try. And um, this sounds so silly. Um, and I hope we get to talk about this, but, um, using technology as a tool and there's this one app, which I got, it's called headspace Yep. and it's what really got me into it actually. Um, because I, I had a hard time wrapping my brain around, okay, I'm just going to sit here and what, like, how do I quiet my mind? I don't know. I'm just going to sit here and think about how I should be quieting my mind. I'm not really doing anything. Um, but I really liked, um, this headspace app because it just starts with 10 minutes a day. Mm-hmm. And I would just sit for 10 minutes a day. And it's really just about, you know, just to get started, you are just observing breath and you are learning to just observe the thoughts that are passing by. And he has some great analogies. Like just imagine it's just like a car and you're just going to watch that thought just pass right by and just let it, just let it come and let it go. And so it was a guided meditation, which I think was really helpful for me in the beginning. Um, And I think I started feeling the positive effects of it immediately. And once you start, um, once you get beyond the point of, uh, it being something you force yourself to do, it becomes something you really look forward to doing. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that has really helped me. I mean, I think that it helps in a lot of different areas when I think about how it has helped me in my work. Um, 
I would say just mm, helping me feel a lot more centered. Um, I can feel overwhelmed, I think, sometimes with the amount of work I have to do in running my business. Yep. Um, uh, people ask me all the time, like, when I'm going to hire somebody to either work with me or, like, help me on the back end of things. And I just haven't gotten to a point where um, I can or want to do that. Mm-hmm. So I think I'm juggling a lot of different um, balls. And it is hard for me to transition from the computer time and doing that back end business stuff to then, okay, let's get into the creative flow in the workshop. And I think that the meditation has kind of helped me create more of this flow. It's, it sounds so silly when I say it sometimes, but, um, there's a sense of calm that it has brought into my life, which has been really helpful in managing a life that can feel really busy. Yep. No, I, you don't have to convince me. And I com- I understand everything you're saying because I've been meditating. I try to do it daily um, and I've done a pretty good job for, for almost almost seven years now. And uh, yeah. I, I, it's hands down the most important thing I've ever done. Like it, it, it's amazing how it just allows you to – everything you said I agree with. And I think it just allows you to kind of detach from from just uh, – it allows you to, to – react and or allows you to respond to things instead of reacting to things oh a hundred percent yeah it just gives you that little bit of space whereas you used to do you know i used to do things without even or have um, reactions to things without even thinking about it you know that's just what i did and now it just puts that little bit of space between when something happens and how i respond and it gives you that time to kind of consider it and make a choice versus just uh, instinctual response and it's really really powerful that's what that what you just said that buffer of time between uh you know feeling or emotion and then process and then reaction um that is huge not only in like work life but in personal life and relationships so yeah I heard a, that you has might been like this. wonderful yeah i heard a, a uh, i was listening to some other podcast the other day and they were talking about meditation and the way they described it they said that you know people still you know if you're a master meditator like the dalai lama he still gets mad but what yeah. meditation does is it reduces the half-life of that emotion. And so whereas yeah. like I used to, if something made me mad, I could be mad for like two days about it. And now it's yeah. like five minutes. Um, and oh, it just, yeah. you know, it just helps you remove yourself or detach from, from the emotion, not get taken for a ride. And that's, it's enormously powerful. And it sounds, for people that haven't done it, it sounds crazy and it sounds like hippie stuff. But man, I'm I'm from Eastern North Carolina. You can hear my accent. I'm not, if it was yeah. some kind of crazy stuff, I wouldn't be doing it. It's, it's very powerful. And it doesn't, it doesn't even have to do with, um, it doesn't, it's not spiritual. It could be, yeah. but it's, it's more like an exercise for your mind. Yeah. I would not consider myself, um, uh, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't subscribe to any one spirituality. Um, I'm still formulating my views on life, <laughs> but, um, just as I practice for, for, um, life in the modern world, I would, I would encourage everybody just to try. And I have a feeling you are going to feel um, the ripples of its effect um, in all aspects of life. So can't recommend it enough. Yeah, same here. We could talk about that for like two hours. But <laughs> um, <laughs> So I know that you've started doing workshops where people come in and you teach them how to make hats. Um, yeah. And and so in the, the roles have kind of been reversed. And now you've got apprentice. You've got an apprentice coming in and, and you're the, the mentor, how has that, how has that changed your hat making? Cause you know, people say that, 
in order to teach something, you really have to understand it a lot better than yeah. if you were just, uh, you know, theoretically understood in your head. How, so how has that affected things for you? Well, um, the first workshop I did, I was incredibly nervous. Um, and I was so pleasantly surprised, um, because it went really well and I had such a good time. But one of the first things I sort of realized, um, in that first workshop was the way I really realized how ingrained a lot of it had become in me. I remember it brought me back to my first days of working in my first teacher's shop where I touched the material so timidly and it just felt so foreign. And now I just do these things in a second nature way. And, um, you know, my, my hands just sort of know these things. And so it was really interesting to stop and start breaking it down for people. And it brought me back to like, oh, like, remember when you were here and this felt so foreign? And so that was a great thing just for me to reflect and be like, wow, look at how far you have come. Um, look at how second nature this is to you. It's just muscle memory now. Um, so that was wonderful. And then I wouldn't say it, the workshops have changed my approach or my hat making, but it has certainly, I, I decided to do those workshops, not really knowing if I was going to enjoy doing them or if I would continue doing them. But I figured, Hey, I'm going to give it a shot and see how it goes. And what I learned is I really love doing it and I really love sharing it with people. And the people who are coming to these workshops, you know, they, some of them are, you know, leather workers or they're into some other trade, but a lot of them are just, uh, people who have a nine to five sort of an office job. And, um, the way that they light up in these workshops and the joy that they get from this hands-on process, um, is a really special thing to share with people. And that I'm realizing is one of, I think I'm finding a a bigger purpose in me is to share this with people and stoke that inspiration and get them excited about this working with your hands. Cause I remember when I first started doing this, I think that I fell so in love with it because I had been in university and I had been, you know, in this more heady world. Yep. And I, and I all of a sudden was working with my hands in a way I hadn't since maybe I was a kid. And, um, and there is something to that. There is something to working with your hands um, as a human, I think that is really important for us. And I, I get to watch that, um, catch on in these people who come to the workshops. Yeah. So, I think it's something that's lacking in, in most people's lives and majority of people, because most people sit in front of a computer all day. And, um, yes, I think I agree with you that it's, it's part of, it's deep in our DNA to, to make stuff. That's really the only thing we have going for us as a species <laughs> that we're smart yes. and we can team up and, and make stuff. Um, yeah, it's, it makes you feel uh, it makes you feel useful and empowered and and capable, and um, I think that's really important for people to remember that like, you know, we are very capable beings, and you should be able to build and do um, on your own. And um, I like igniting that in people. So you are in Central Oregon, um, and which is a beautiful area. I spent some time there when I was in college, and I. I took some time off. I did a semester of Knowles, the national outdoor leadership school. And we oh, cool. spent, um, we spent a few weeks at Smith rock, which is kind of mm. in that neck of the woods. And yes. I just, I love it. I remember we slept under the stars the whole time. And at night I could hear the coyotes howling. And oh, I just yeah. thought I, it was so cool. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that area, that landscape and how that 
being there physically located there has influenced your work? Yeah. Well, uh, Smith Rock, Terrebonne, that area, one of my very best friends has a farm there in Terrebonne. So I, I end up spending a lot of time out there and we ride horses out there and, um, it is really magical. Um, so we live in Madras now. We moved to Madras, which is about 50 minutes north of Bend, um, just this last year. And before that, we were living um, on the east side of Bend. And, um, you know, I grew up in coastal northern California, um, very lush, lots of fog and big redwoods. And I think when I first moved to the Central Oregon region, I was really enamored with the high desert landscape just because it was so vastly different from really what I'd been around most of my life. And I went to school at UC Santa Cruz, which is pretty much like a school in the trees. Mm -hmm. So this big open, um, high desert sagebrush and juniper landscape was so, um, different and exciting. Um, so, I mean, it's been a really inspiring place for me in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, I, I like to run, and one of my favorite trails to run, um, this was when I was living in Bend, was the Badlands Trail, which is east of Bend. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I started running that trail, I don't know, five or six years ago. And, you know, that's where I was in a very different... I, I ran that trail throughout the progression of, the, of my journey with this hat business and just in life the last six years. So I do a lot of my biggest thinking on runs. And, um, something I kept coming back to when I would run this Badlands trail, I mean, you know, there's hardly any shelter. And if you're running in the summer in central Oregon, it's hot and it's, you know, you are just like out in the elements and there is something like sort of beautifully, um, tough about that area. And something I kept coming back to on these runs is just like this concept of resilience and all that survives in a landscape like that is very resilient. The animals and the plants, they have created these mechanisms that allow them to live in really tough, harsh environments. And I would kind of like embody that when I was out on these runs. Like I might be facing um, big challenges and decisions and, um, you know, just tough things that I was working through. And I would just sort of embody this idea of resilience, um, by going on these runs in the desert. So I'd say that's a huge way in which the landscape has sort of influenced me. Um, And then about four years ago, I started getting involved with a farm um, in Bend. Um, And it's now it's the farm and the farmer who I live with. Um, But I, I started getting involved with this farm and that has really shaped really what is going to be the the future of my life now, but, um, really sinking into my relationship with the land in a deeper way than I think I've ever had. I've also, you know, I've been in this place longer than almost any other place I've been except for my home that I grew up in. And, you know, just the, the more integrated you get into like a farm and a landscape, you have to just, you really just start to learn the land and you have to just be an observer And, um, that's really just been my journey, um, in this area for the last few years now is sinking deeper into connection with this land, being an observer and really finding my place in all of it. Um, 
Yeah. That's very cool. And that, that has echoes of Wendell Berry in it. You know, he talks a lot about really understanding your, your place and no having a sense of place. And, you know, he has a farm in Kentucky and he just knows that particular plot of land better than, than anything else. He's, you know, he's a big proponent of going deep versus, versus, you know, wide and shallow. And, um, I love hearing that. He is one of my greatest heroes. Um, and I read the unsettling of America, uh, before I knew that farming was at all in my path of life. And I came back to it again recently and it's been really interesting to reread it. Um, now that I'm here and and this farm is a huge part of my future. Um, Wendell Berry, I don't know that anybody can say it any better. And he has inspired one of my other greatest or favorite writers, uh, Michael Pollins. Mm -hmm. Um, have you read any of his stuff? I have, I read, uh, in defense of food and I think that's it. There's another one on my shelf that I've not read, but my wife's read, I think three of his. He is great. And, and, you know, Wendell Berry, I don't know that anybody can say it better. I think that Michael Pollan says it a bit, talks about things a bit differently um, in our in a modern time. But um, that that idea, what what Wendell Berry talks about, um, it really ties into everything that I believe in as far as um, it's all so connected and um, our our well-being as a culture and as a community is so tied into the well-being of our land and that which we are consuming and the lands which that which we're consuming is grown on mm-hmm. or cultivated on it's all so connected and the health of our entire community is so dependent on all of these aspects of it and so i mean yeah i couldn't i couldn't be any more happy because i feel like i spent a lot of years searching for that sense of place and um I really have found it in Central Oregon, um, you know, in, in the region in general. I'm really enamored with um, the whole region, but specifically, you know, <laughs> this this plot of land. We have 86 acres of organic land, certified organic land that we will be, you know, cultivating for hopefully the rest of our lives. And I, it's one of the most exciting journeys I could dream of. Yeah, the the cool thing about agriculture agriculture is, well, there there are many cool things about it. But you know, I think a lot of people they they think of just the land. But you you hit on this a second ago is that yeah, the land is part of it. But I think agriculture also encompasses community and the people on the land. Absolutely, and that's something really unique. You know, where I live in Colorado, I do a lot of work with the cattlemen's land trust and they they conserve working ranches and you know by doing that they conserve this open space that's important but then they also you know they're helping families and they're helping local communities and they're helping food production and it sounds like you're you're right there in the in the middle of that which is you know in farming which is different from what i do but it's the exact same idea and it's just the the ripple effects of of that go out so far people just don't understand yeah and it's you know it's it, at least now it's a little bit more of a conversation in popular culture of, uh, you know, you know, what's that saying? They, uh, think globally, act locally. That's mm-hmm. like a little jingle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but I hope that people, I hope that people hear that and it's not just a little jingle. I hope that people hear that and they really think about it because, um, gosh, really we should be starting at this local level. We should be really investing in our communities and the health of, our local communities, and that will have great 
impact on a large larger scale. And that needs to happen all around the country. And so, yeah, like a Wendell Berry's look at like, go deep, like dig in. Mm -hmm. Um, I hope that wherever people are, that, 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 that they are inspired to do that. Um, because that's, I don't know, I, it's a grand statement, but I think that's what will save the world. (laughs) And back to that, like, you know, as far as, um, uh, what we're facing today, like it is a conversation, uh, climate change. There is too much carbon in the atmosphere. There is no denying that one fact. And, you know, some scientists are saying nowadays that, you know, it's, uh, we're beyond, yes, we all need to take responsibility and, and change our daily acts in order to not be contributing as much to the increase of this problem. But uh, a lot of scientists were say that we're beyond this tipping point of now we need to seriously, it's not just that we don't just need to change and, and not contribute more. We need to figure out how to reverse this. And, one of the greatest uh, possibilities for reversing an increase in, in carbon in the atmosphere is sequestering it via the soil. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to how do we do that, it's agriculture and yep. it's proper it's proper grasslands management. So if you are uh, if you are an environmentalist, if you're somebody who cares about um, the future of the planet, <laughs> um, we need, you know, responsible farmers, we need responsible and innovative ranchers to be managing those grasslands in a way in which we are pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and putting it back into the soil. Um, I'm just, I feel so passionately about that. I, I agree completely. And for people who want to learn more about that, I interviewed a guy named Jim Howell um, early in the podcast. He might be like the fifth or sixth episode, but he was a co-founder of the Savory Institute, which does a lot oh, of regenerative. Yeah. yeah. And he... He um, has he's basically a rancher who uses holistic management on large scale, like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of acres all over the world to restore these grasslands. So, you know, with the ultimate goal of um, trying to reverse climate change. And he's a he's a hardcore rancher. He's not you know, it's this is it isn't some sort of uh, elite academic kind of guy. I mean, he is a rancher, but he's devoted his life to this. And he. He lived in he lives in Boulder, and I used to live in Boulder. And in Boulder, you know, you have a lot of so called environmentalists, but they're they just kind of uh, for some reason <laughs> they think that all livestock is bad, and they oh, think yeah. livestock is you know cows are bad and this and that. But Jim, he told me he said, you know, when I am given the opportunity to explain this to people, he said I've never once had somebody not agree with me. And yeah. it's just a matter of telling the story over and over and trying to get it to as many people as you can. So I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up. Well, and what you just mentioned too, about, um, hmm, this discrepancy in the cons or in the environmentalist world that might look at ranching negatively. Uh, you know, I, I have to have compassion, you know, even though they say some really aggressive things cause they just don't understand. And if they were to spend time with some, um, uh, some of these ranchers, they would understand that these are, these are the stewards, um, and they're doing important work. But it, I can bring it back, actually. Wendell Berry talked about this a lot. There's this um, sort of, uh, I think he called it like a terranium view of the world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's this its this thinking that, you know, we are separate from this uh, concept of nature. So we should leave nature untouched, um, you know, this in this terranium that we will just look and observe. But, like, no, like what, what we really need to do is we need to accept that we are a part of it and we are all connected and we thrive when we are stewards of the land 
and caring for it. And the land thrives when we are responsibly caring for it with, with it and with its health in our, um, as a priority in our minds. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, nature will not thrive if we just are hands off. Um, it, it takes, you know, responsible stewardship. Um, so yeah, any, any rancher that I've come into contact with, they are on that level. Yeah, they are. And I don't know where this, this, um, kind of anti-livestock came, thing came from, um, because I mean, there are, there are, there are some ranchers and you know some of these big massive livestock or, or meat packing operations they may not yeah. they have the same goals um, that you and I or Jim Howell have but overall you know for a rancher or a farmer to to make money they've got to you know make money year after year they've got to take care of the land um, and yeah. it's become clear that, that that's really the only way that it's going to work so um, yeah that's really cool that you're that you're doing that um, so you mentioned a few of the uh, Wendell Berry books and Michael Pollan. Are there any other books related to agriculture that have been impactful to you? Um, yeah. Uh, in this last year I read, um, it's somewhat about agriculture, but more just about connection to land. Um, it's called braiding sweetgrass. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. Another guy I had on the podcast a while back, Taylor Keene, he's a native mm-hmm. American, um, out of, uh, Omaha. He he referenced that when he says one of his favorite books. It is amazing. Robin Wall Kimmer, who wrote that book, she is a scientist, but she is also a Native woman who carries with her a lot of sort of traditional ways at looking at relationship between um, man, plant, medicine, and connection. So she, but she has a science. She has a science background. She is a scientist, um, and she has a really beautiful way of weaving um, the, those traditions and the scientific view together. Uh, I can't recommend that book enough. And that's been really big for me as far as thinking about um, just, uh, you know, whether it's spiritual or just um, a a sole purpose connection to really being a steward for the land and what that looks like and feels like. Um, So that book has been big for me. Um, A great farming book that I just love um, is called The Dirty Life. And it was written by oh, Kristen Kimball. Okay. Um, and she and her husband have a whole diet CSA farm, I think, in upstate New York. Um, and I, I love that book. If anyone is interested in farming, um, she she's a writer. And I don't think that she had any inclination or, or idea that she would become a farmer. But she ended up falling in love with a farmer. And she has a really wonderful way of writing about um her journey into becoming a farmer. And, um, she also has a really great newsletter. She puts out for the farm. I think it's, um, monthly during the season. So yeah, Kristen Kimball, um, and the dirty life was a great farming book. I loved. Cool. Um, Those are great. I'll put links to everything, um, in, yeah. uh, in the notes so people can access these. Um, one more question i can't we've already been talking for almost an hour which is crazy oh. <laughs> um, we'll need to do a part two and three and four uh, <laughs> totally. but, anytime uh, yeah um so you you do an awesome job of documenting this really unique life that you've put together on instagram and i love yeah. instagram and i think it's it's just for me personally like thinking about this podcast spreading i think i owe a lot of that to instagram but sure. at the same time like any social media or computers or email it can be a huge distraction. And so how yeah. do you balance your mindful life and your process oriented life and this creative life 
with the constant buzzing or possible buzzing of the the phone in your pocket? Oh man, well, it is um it has been a journey and I'm learning more and more about what I need and what I don't need <laughs> in my life. Yep. So I I am really working on looking at it as a tool and using it as a tool and then setting up boundaries um, because I do find that it um, creates way too much noise. So all I can really say is that I'm just starting to implement more boundaries. First of all, like I deleted Facebook. I don't really use Facebook as a tool. I found that it was bringing a lot of extra noise into my mind. Mm -hmm. So I just... So was like, you know what? It's not really serving me. I don't really need it. We don't need any of this stuff. <laughs> yep. So c- cutting that out was big. And then um, on a day-to-day basis, what I do now when I walk into my workshop is I turn my phone onto airplane mode nice. um, so that I'm not getting notifications or anything like that. Um, and I only I like to only do my sort of computer work, my, my emailing and sort of financial management stuff uh, one to two days a week. And I really try to compartmentalize that because I have found it's hard for me to transition um, from the computer into creative workspace. Um, and and I just, uh, you know, I, I don't really, it's surprising. I mean, I, I observe through running my business really the day and age that we are in in which people expect you to be available at all times. And I don't really, I'm not a fan of that. Um, you know, somebody could send me an email and if I don't get back to them, you know, in a day or two, uh, I can get like an aggressive follow up email (laughs) and I just, I just can't stand it. I, I don't really understand why we've gotten here, you know? Um, so I'm working on, I don't know, I don't want to say like training my customers, but, I operate in a certain way and I am who I am. And I think that the customers who I attract are a certain way. And, um, you know, just don't expect to hear from me that night necessarily. I don't know. I'm just setting up these boundaries with what works for me and what, (laughs) what doesn't. And I'm not really going to let myself be pressured, um, by what seems to be a social norm now, um, to have it in my life all the time because it is too much. It is. It's too much for anybody, but especially somebody who's trying to be creative. There's there's a great book called Deep Work. Have you ever heard of this book? Um, you know, I heard about it just through you. Um, yeah, it's by this guy named Cal Newport, and um, it is so good. And it talks about how these distractions for anybody who needs to think, or he's a he's a, a computer scientist, but he talks about. But it, I think it could easily extend to creatives. You just can't have those distractions, and it's it's unnecessary, Mm-mm. and it's I think a lot of time it's it's negative, and it just creates it this is. kind of residue. And I think meditation really uh, shines a light on how distracting that stuff is because you'll have these at least I have these thoughts pop up about something I saw on social media, and I'm like, why in the world is that in my brain? I don't want that in my <laughs> oh, brain. Oh yeah, totally. And I actually, um, yeah, I had a silly situation recently in which another hat maker. Um, uh, on Instagram ex- expressed that he was displeased that I wasn't following his work. And, and I was just like, Oh, it was one of those moments where I'm like, I want to throw my phone in the river right now. I can't even believe this is a conversation. And, and I t- tried really nicely to explain to him. I actually don't follow a lot of other hat makers because I don't want to accidentally let, um, myself be influenced by their work. Sure. Um, 
I do follow a few people who I admire hugely, but I'm very careful. Like I don't want to be unconsciously influenced or, um, by seeing other people's works. Um, I follow a lot of other artists and other mediums, but, um, yeah, I'm careful about that. So that's one way in which I sort of like set this boundary. Um, and, and yeah, it's been an amazing tool for me. Instagram in particular has been an amazing tool for me and my business and I appreciate it. And I like the way that it's a very story based, um, app or way of communicating. I like sharing the story. Um, so I really enjoy it, but, um, yeah, the, the meditation and then also reading the war of art, it really got me to thinking about why, why does my brain get into this hyper stimulated mode and how can I reduce that in order to be doing better work? And, um, and certainly like the, the phone and that in my life all the time, um, it adds to the resistance, And, um, I think what is higher priority is that I'm doing great work. So I would rather, um, set that aside. So I I think in this day and age, it's a practice and you have to be conscientious of it and aware of it. And, um, you know, when I go out in public and I see people like not face to face interfacing and I see a sea of people looking down at their phones, it's another one of those moments where I'm like, man, I want to throw this thing in the river. Yeah, it's scary. And we're outnumbered. You know, they've got, if you think about Instagram and Facebook and those people, they've got teams and teams and dozens or maybe hundreds of extremely high, highly paid psychologists trying to figure yeah. out how to make it as addictive as possible. So it's oh, yeah. it's not as simple as just saying, well, I'm not going to look at it because they're, those people are saying, well, we're going to make you look at it. You know, you're going to be addicted yeah. to it. And so yeah. good, good job. When we were emailing to, um, to set this up, I, I actually, when I, it took a few days for us to get in touch and I was hoping that that was the reason I was like, I bet she doesn't <laughs> stare at email all day, which is so cool. Uh-uh. And so I'm so glad to hear that. Keep don't, yeah, do not be influenced by anybody saying you should do otherwise. That's, yeah. um, that is, I think that's great. And that's, I think that is probably a, one of the many parts of your success because you, you set your own boundaries on stuff like that. Yeah. And that's, if I had any advice for people in our day and age, like whatever you want to do in life, you're going to need to really master whatever it is, your trade, your craft, your business, you're going to need to master that. And you're going to need to really learn to master yourself. And, um, I just say in the last couple of years, I've really just started to get to know myself and invest in getting to know myself and identifying like what makes me feel good and what doesn't. And, you know, if your work and your well-being um, and the bettering of yourself is a priority, identify those things which aren't serving you and take action to cut them out because um, it's really, it's creating a lot of unhappiness. And um, I hope that people choose to try, try unplugging, literally turn off your phone, go into nature like just go reconnect with yourself and be quiet and be in the sagebrush. Just go without your phone. And I'm just like, if I had one request of the world and like, yeah, don't put screens in front of your kids all the time. Yes, definitely not. That is poison. It's poison. Um, yeah. You've got the wisdom of like a 75 year old. <laughs> You'll be well, extremely wise when you're, when you're that age. That's uh is I love hearing that stuff and I agree with it. And I think it, it needs to be reiterated to me yeah. and everybody else. So, um, well, I've got a few quick questions that I like to ask everybody. Um, just okay. because it's been fun to, it's fun to compare the, all the answers that you hear. And there's been some great recommendations and wisdom that comes from this. So 
Well, do you have any favorite books of all time? You mentioned War of War. We've mentioned a ton of books. Are there any others yeah. that stick out as very important to you? And they, they can be about any subject. Um, Travels with Charlie is uh, it's a John Steinbeck book um, that has been really influential. And if you look at me in my life, I have a workshop on wheels and I have a dog named Charlie. You can start to piece together that that book had a great influence. Um, so that that book. Um, <laughs> in this day and age, uh, the monkey wrench gang, mm-hmm. um, I, yeah, that, that book has been on my mind a lot recently. Um, and then a, a recent book that I read that I just like fell into and totally escaped into you, it's called Temperance Creek. Um, and I'm forgetting the author's name, but she lives in Joseph. They oh, cool. are, it's a, it's a story about this couple, real life story about this couple, um, who were um, packers uh, throughout Hell's Canyon and the Wallawas in Eastern Oregon. And um, I absolutely love that book. Cool. Those are both, uh, all those are great. And I hadn't, I've not read Travels with Charlie or Temperance Creek. So those are great. I'll add them to the list. And for right. people listening, I've got a comprehensive list of every book that has been recommended on the podcast and it's on the, on the website. So it's quite a, quite a resource. <laughs> Um, yeah. Do you have any favorite documentaries? We talked a little bit about that at the beginning or films. Yeah. Um, well, we talked about Ben McMaster's and so unbranded. Um, yeah. And I recently adopted, um, a Mustang Colt and I'm going to be starting him this year. So, um, yeah, I liked the conversation and, and the story he told in that, um, unbroken ground as far as documentaries about sort of the future of regenerative agriculture, um, I haven't seen that yet, but I've seen the trailer and it looks really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, this is not at all to do with the West, but I think anyways, it was very, very powerful for me. It's a documentary called 13th. Okay. Yeah. 13th. It's about, um, it's about, well, the 13th amendment and it has to do with our, um, the state of our, our prison system. And it's really, it's hard to watch, but I think it's really important to watch and think about. Cool. Those are all yeah. good. Um, is there some activity that you enjoy or a hobby that would be surprising to, to listeners? So we've talked, I mean, you've, you've got a ton going on and then you've, you've got athletics and you run and you make stuff and you're a farmer. <laughs> is there anything <laughs> yeah. that's funny or weird or would be surprising to people? Okay. Well, I don't know if this counts because I can't do it yet, but it is what I am working towards doing. Um, I really wanted to be, I really want to be a mounted archer. Cool. That'd be yeah, really so cool. I've, I've, yeah. I've got a bow and I've been, um, well, not practicing enough, but I've got a bow and I'm starting my first cult. So, um, I'm really starting from the ground up in every way. And I hope to, uh, in the next few years be, uh, riding my cult, uh, you know, slinging arrows. <laughs> <laughs> to be sure to post pictures of that on or videos on Instagram. <laughs> totally. <laughs> That's awesome. That's yeah. a, quite an undertaking. I'm impressed. Yeah. <laughs> um, where is your favorite location in the West? Ooh, I wanted to say our farm. Yeah. Um, because I'm falling so deeply in love with that piece of land. Um, if I, other than the farm, um, I think where I grew up, uh, which is in Occidental, which is in Sonoma County. Um, and West Sonoma County um, is a really, really special part of California. 
and uh, this will forever be. Um, I mean, this is this is where I really started to get to. This is where I grew up. It's everything. So um, that would be my second favorite. Is did you grow up near Charles Post? Is he from there as well? Um, yeah, Charles is from a nearby area, um, and we actually met up down here. And then he was living in Bolinas for a while, so near, close by. Bolinas has really good surfing, right? Yes, it does. I was just uh, I was in Northern California a few weeks ago, and I was surfing at Pacifica. And I was talking oh, yeah. to some yeah. guy. I'm a longboarder, and he said I need to go to Bolinas. So it'll yeah, be on go my... to Bolinas. Cool. Um, so this is a good one. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? <laughs> um, gosh, my dad has given me great advice. And my mom and my dad, and they're a couple of heroes. So a couple of things we like to joke about are like Tom Habstead-isms would be don't be a sheep. Um, resilience is key. And um, my mom likes to always say, you know, we're all a work in progress until we die. So all very wise words. Those are great. Yeah. Those are worthy yeah. of like getting them tattooed on your arm or something. Totally. Like <laughs> I should get that. Don't be a sheep. On my uh, yeah, those are great. Um, <laughs> and so next to the last question, um, if you could make a request of the people listening to this um, podcast, and it's just people who love the American West in one way or the other, uh, through athletics or conservation or art or, you know, ranching, they, they love the West. Um, what would that advice be? Um, a request, advice, yeah. words of wisdom. Yeah, I, I thought about this one a lot. Um, and you know, we talked about Wendell Berry and Michael Pollan and, and I think it was Wendell Berry that said is eating as an agricultural act. Um, and, and then Michael Pollan said something in effect of like the, really one of the most significant things that an average normal day person can do, um, to really change the state of affairs, um, when it comes to uh, the environment and soil health would be to cook. And, and I bring that all back to like, if you, if you love the West, if you love um, the gift of this amazing place that we get to inhabit. And I mean that it is such a gift and look at it like it's a gift. Um, what is fundamental to that surviving is soil health and what is so instrumental in um, helping repair our soil is uh, regenerative agriculture and holistic range and grasslands management. And in order to have the right people farming and, and managing these grasslands, we need to support the farmers and the ranchers so that they can make a viable living doing this. So my biggest request to people would be to think about that. And, and eating is an agricultural act. If you eat, you vote with your dollars mm -hmm. with where you, you spend your money on food and just consider that before you go to a supermarket and buy conventional meat, you are voting with your dollars and, and, and we have power. Like I think the greatest power we have is, um, in, in with where we put our dollars. And so each person has a chance to vote every day and, and support the stewards of the lands being the farmers and the ranchers and the people doing that work on the ground. So that would, that'd be my biggest yeah, that's, uh, that's great. I, I agree with all of it. So how can people find you online um, and connect with you? Instagram is the best. I am I am there. And um, and I have a website. It's havestadhetco.com. And I have a, a little contact page on the website. And you can shoot me an email from there. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It was really fun. And I think we only scratched the surface, so we might have to do part two. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you, Ed. I really appreciate um, what you're doing with this podcast. I I have enjoyed it. And I went and looked at your book list um, recently. And um, I think I'm going to spend a fortune this year, like adding to my library from that list so uh, (laughs) I think it's yeah I'm thankful for all the great storytellers like you hey it's Ed again thanks so much for listening to the podcast and thanks for listening to that particular episode I hope you enjoyed it before you go I've got three quick things number one if you like the podcast please do me a huge favor either pass it along to a friend who may be interested share it on your social media and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.